Oh, would you look at that? There's a new episode of the Black Cast on my phone, ready to play right now. Welcome to the Blackcast. It is I, Christian Blatt, as always, able to be found on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. And if you like the Blackcast, and if you're listening now, why wouldn't you? You can like the Blackcast on Facebook, follow at Blackcast on Twitter, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T, and we always have Blackcast.com for some of your quick link reference needs for the Blackcast. This week is a fun little diversion. I'm going to spend the entire show speaking with one of three authors of a book called Not Exactly Rocket Scientists and Other Stories. His name is John McElroy. It's a book about basically childhood, being really close friends, and he and two other of his friends have all written some short stories and they're collected together in a book that uh, I'm finding really fun. I admit to him that I haven't finished it yet. I did only get it over the weekend, but I'm really enjoying it. And I have already had the conversation with him. This is me speaking in the future. And you're about to have a little trip back in time with me to when I'm about to have the conversation. And I hope that uh, everybody enjoys it. It really connected with me because... One, I was once a little boy. It might be hard to believe for some of the people I know, but yes, I too was once a young boy. And I also grew up in a small town. If you know me and you hear me talk about this on the podcast, I grew up in a town called Greenwood Lake in New York State, but on the border of New Jersey. It was literally four miles from New Jersey. As we used to say, the right side of the border, but uh, that's just some, some New York pride coming through. But I really identify with it, and it's funny because it's a story about a much simpler time. It's in the 50s. And as I say to John in a little bit, when all of us grew up, probably seems like a much simpler time than right now. And I think for that reason, I wanted to have this conversation with John McElroy, whom, as I said, is one of three writers of Not Exactly Rocket Scientists and Other Stories. This book is available on Amazon and Hopefully at some of our old-fashioned brick-and-mortar bookstores, if you can still find one. And you can find out more by going to notexactlyrocketscientists.com. Thanks for joining me today, John. Christian, it's great to be on the show with you. Thank you so much. Uh, let's start off with the fact that you are one of three authors of the book, the others being uh, Gilbert E. Bud Schill Jr. and Robert D. Rob Hamilton the third, And it's this is the first book for the three of you. Talk a little bit about how the three of you know each other, how long you've known each other, and what inspired you to actually write this book. Those are, those are great questions. Uh, let's see if I can keep them in order. Uh, as, as Bud often says... Uh, Bud and I actually started kindergarten together, so, my gosh, that was about 65 years ago, uh, and we've been friends ever since. Uh, Rob uh, inched over from Philadelphia uh, three or four years later, and he joined the circus with us, and uh, we've been friends for, for decades. And uh, as, as we really like to say, we've been telling these stories 
literally for decades. Uh, we laugh, we get a little crazy. Not too long ago, uh, we started telling the stories with our wives, and they, as Bud said, they said, you can't possibly be that stupid. <laughs> and uh, we said, well, and Bud puts it so beautifully, he says, well, we were. And, and then they said, well, we, we just still don't believe it. We're tired of the stories. Why don't you write them down? And boy, was that a challenge. So we did, and we started swapping stories around. And at the end of the day, uh, we passed them around. We worked on them. It was a full collaboration, uh, and uh, we produced a book. And uh, our wives read it, and as they said, yeah, you really were that stupid. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a labor of love. It, it, it's a book about, as you know, life writ small, just kids back in a different time, maybe a simpler time, having fun. Uh, we were good kids at heart. We didn't try to screw up. It's just we could find chaos and we could find stupid everywhere. And as we said, we just weren't exactly rocket scientists, Christian. <laughs> now, of course, the, the fun thing would be if one of you, any one of you, had gone on to become a rocket scientist, because then it, it uh, would have put a different level on the uh, title of the book. But uh, I think, you know what, here's the thing. I think even rocket scientists aren't rocket scientists when they're kids. It's great to be able to be a kid and be so stupid and, uh, you know, lovingly stupid as, as you guys uh, sort of celebrate the, the stupidity of childhood. And, you know, I like what you say that the book evokes a simpler time. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, there was always, you know, sort of the look back to, to your era. You know, the, you know, obviously you had shows like Happy Days that had been on forever. But of course, now you just look back and like, oh, we thought that those modern crazy times were too much. But uh, now I have I have a three year old son and a seven month old daughter. And I just think like, oh, if only things were were simple, like the crazy times that I grew up in, you know, well, you know, I Absolutely, and, and we've got uh, kids and, and grandkids now, and, and I do know this, and this, I don't want to get too serious here, but uh, my granddaughter uh, asked me, she said, you know, Grandpa, it seemed when you tell the stories that, that you kids might have been happier, it might have been a simple, simpler time, and as, as Bud has responded to this in a couple of questions, yeah, I, I think it was a simpler time, and as Rob has said, uh, we were in a bubble, uh, but, but, you know, there was a lot going on out there. Uh, in the introduction of our book, we talked a little bit about that and said, look, we, we knew we were in a bubble. In a sense, we call that a gift that our parents and coaches and teachers gave us uh, to let us grow up gently. And, you know, that's not a luxury that kids have today. Uh, as we point out in, in story after story, you know, we didn't have computers and 24-7 news and helicopter parents and, 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 you know, attached at the hip cell phones, we were kind of on our own. Um, I think somewhere in the, the book we might have used the term we were like free-range kids. And, and our parents uh, trusted us, as Bud often points out, to let us go out and kind of explore and have our adventures in the real world and not in a virtual world. So, you know, that might, that might be the real big difference, you know. And as I, I kind of point out, you know, we weren't drinking milk uh, that is, was irradiated by atomic bomb blasts <laughs> out in the Nevada des desert in the 50s. So, you know, and, 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 you know, our baseball card of Ted Williams did have a story about his coming back from uh, flying jets in Korea. So, you know, the real world did creep in, 
but we were we were in a bubble, and 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 that's what we celebrate in the book. Yeah, absolutely, and I think to a large extent, especially when you're very little children, it's it's great to sort of have a bubble uh, around your kids. Like I said, my son's about to be three. The things that he doesn't know about. It's refreshing, you know. There was recently a, a great documentary about Fred Rogers um, and Mr. Rogers. And watching it, there were just clips of sort of things that they dealt with on that show. And I was just like, oh, no, these are all questions I'm going to get at some point. I'm so glad that he's only three. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about him saying like, hey, Daddy, what's an assassination? You know, just things like that, that uh, uh, obviously at a certain era, of course, words like that got thrown around a, a, a lot more casually, I suppose. It's nice to think about the simpler time. And in regards to what you're saying about free-range parenting, it's actually, that's a term that is used derisively now, I found out. You know, it's like, oh, we, we should talk to those free-range parents that let their kids go out by themselves. You know, again, talking about a slightly simpler era when I was a kid in the early 80s. We lived in a little town. It's uh, it's upstate New York, but it's right on the border of New Jersey. It's a little town called Greenwood Lake, New York. And there's a, there's a lake there. And a great way to get across town was to rock, walk across the ice. And, you know, obviously not necessarily the safest thing to do, but the way that my mom looked at it was like, well, go with your brother. Because that way, yeah. you know, yeah. we we both fall in, I guess, was the thinking. Uh, but yeah. when I was an adult, I thought about like, well, you know, we would walk in the, the, the tracks of the snowmobiles. So I guess if they didn't fall in, we were probably at least reasonably okay. But uh, I, I, I like to think that something like that now, you know, maybe in that town there's a problem of like, well, you can't let your kids go out on the ice by themselves ever. Yeah, well, you know, it, from time to time, uh, particularly on weekends, I mean, we would just head out. On a, on a Saturday morning, say in the summer, we'd saddle up on our bicycles, we'd, we'd make a couple of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, we'd get that Sprotenium 90 laced milk cartons, <laughs> but, you know, we, we would head out, and uh, our, our parents, as Bud says so frequently, didn't have a corner of a clue where we're going, but, but it's so important to understand that they trusted us, and, and we, in effect, understood that, and, and we had fun. And I, I always want to be sure that, that people understand before they read the book that we were pretty good kids. We weren't malicious. We just knew how to find trouble uh, in kind of a small T. And, uh, and our parents understood the equation. And, yeah, we usually got home by supper. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was kind of the rule. As you were talking about before, you know, the book is a collection of short stories written by each of the three of you. Now, when you guys were actually sitting down, were there some childlike disagreements about who got to write which stories? And was there any, like, calling dibs, like, well, if you write this story, then I have to write that one? Well, that's a great question. You know, the, the writing process went amazingly well. All of us professionally have done business writing and legal writing and other writing. It's a very different situation to create. And, and honestly, we had remarkably few differences of opinion. Uh, from time to time, we would have somewhat different recollections of the same events, but, but we seem to be able to work it out to find kind of the golden mean, and, and it is important to note that, that these stories really are based on fact. I kind of fudge it a little bit and say that they're mostly, mostly true, <laughs> but you know, we have the advantage of looking at, at real stuff, and, and as Bud says, real stuff is funnier than fake stuff. And, and we just knew we had a lot of real-life experiences to build on, and, and it was a delightful experience. And, 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 I mean, that's surprising. I've talked to writers who, who collaborate and say, are you still friends? 
and I know Rob pointed out in an interview not long ago, we've actually become stronger friends uh, through the process. I mean, we're we're almost 70 years into these friendships, and and man, we're just we're just hitting our stride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that is just a testament to sort of how close you are. And now uh, let's sort of talk a little bit about the geography. So you guys all grew up together somewhere in suburban New Jersey uh, is what I'm able to understand. Uh, I, I don't know if you're if you're opposed to saying which town, but which county, if you don't want to say exactly where it was. We grew up about 21 miles west of New York City. So we we're a close-end suburb. Yeah, I mean, it was Milburn Township. Sure. Um, you know, it's the whole area up there with Marstown, Essex County. And you might get a kick out of this because I know this show is kind of near and dear to your heart. But we were kind of the classic kids, in, in, to some extent, in the background of the Mad Men series. <laughs> I mean, I know you're, most of our dads slept off on that, you know, the 802 in the morning. Yeah. Uh, into, at that time, Christian, into Hoboken. And then they would either take the uh, Hudson Tube or the ferry into the city. And that was kind of the, those were kind of our dads. They disappeared during the week. But, and it's so important that we recognize, you know, these were the guys who came back from World War II and they just soldiered on, you know, and they slept into jobs. And, and as, as we got into our careers, you know, there's a lot of bad days at work. But those guys just did it. I know my dad worked for a company for 30 years, one job. And, and retired. And I think that was a fairly normal kind of experience. But then they'd come home at night and they'd, uh, they'd run the Little League uh, or were Boy Scouts during, during the week and Little League during the weekend and, and maybe Sunday school during the weekend. So these were, these were great people. And, and our moms were, were soldiering the, and shouldering the load back home. So we, I think it's important to note, and, and Bud Schill's last story, the most important photograph I never saw, it really shifts gears, and, and uh, we think a lot of the stories are borderline hilarious. This is a pretty sensitive thank you uh, to the greatest generation, and, and we hope that that was the right way, essentially, to cap our madcap childhood with, once again, a salute and a thanks to our coaches and moms and dads and, and teachers and and everybody else, that greatest generation that uh, let us grow up gently. Yeah, no, I think uh, obviously that's such a huge, important part of the story. And yeah, it's, I grew up in a, a similar area where it was it was mostly you know parents taking the bus into the city because the train was a yeah. little too far away. But it's the same difference. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older after college and I lived at home for a little while and I actually started commuting. And you realize like just how long that day is for a parent. You know, you've been you've been out playing in the backyard all, all day, but uh, you know your your mom or even your father, whichever, both you know they've been up at the crack of dawn riding the bus and then going to the hard days. Of Work and then dealing with the traffic on the way back, you know, all of that. And it's just not something that you really think about as a kid. It's like, okay, daddy's home, you know? And look, I was lucky because uh, my dad didn't work in the city. He worked a lot around New Jersey. He worked for Western Union for a long time when I was a kid. So it was just a lot of service calls and things. But we were, he was always home before five o'clock. We had dinner at five o'clock every day. And only when I got older did I realize, even in my town, how abnormal that was. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That, that was our norm. But it's curious, the three of us, and I'm thinking of a lot of the friends and characters in the book, how few of us replicated that life, interestingly enough. I, I maybe subconsciously said, I'm not sure I want to do that hour and 15, hour and 20-minute commute each way every day. Uh, I don't know whether that had an impact, but if it was a great life, but uh, 
I didn't want to be a, a commuter. <laughs> and the interesting thing about you saying that you and the guys have sort of gotten closer putting the book together, I'm going to just assume that you scattered to the wind a little bit. I mean, I know that you retired to North Carolina, so I'm going to assume that the guys don't all live close to each other anymore, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, we've had a lifetime friendship. As I said, it's stronger than it's ever been uh, through writing the book. But yeah, just a quick recap. Uh, we all went off to different colleges uh, uh, in the North in terms of graduate school, and I think we put that on the back of the book. Each of us holds a graduate or professional degree uh, from the great University of Virginia. We, we, we love uh, Charlottesville and UVA. Uh, Bud and I did not overlap at the law school in Virginia, but Rob and I overlapped for a year, uh, my last year of law school and uh, his first year of uh, business school at the uh, Wharton School. So we had that kind of later professional uh, connection. And, uh, you know, we get together, try to get together at least every other year, and during the writing of the book, we got together uh, more frequently. To, we call them organic writing sessions, uh, Christian, <laughs> which basically meant we, we had a lot of adult beverage. <laughs> yeah, that that's usually how my friends from childhood and college, that's usually how we get together, too. And That got us over the hard point, and to further elaborate on your question, maybe that's how we were able to... Uh, patch up any of those creative differences. Yeah, and that uh, that fuels some of the best storytelling and sort of what you're oh, talking about. Oh, yeah, it did. I think it enhanced <laughs> measurably some of the stories. Yeah, and, and what you were talking about, sort of telling your stories to your wives, I remember when my friends from college and I all got married, we got to tell the stories again because the wives hadn't heard them. And, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the stories were probably a lot better when we get to tell them with a bunch of girls in the room. But still, oh, you yeah. know, oh, like you say, uh, yeah. mostly, and mostly the, true. Mostly, mostly true. You, you know, look, we're, a little embellishment works. Then again, I, I go back to, to, I love Bud's kind of mantra, that real stuff is funnier than made-up stuff. And uh, I think that was really the case in uh, in our book. We hope so. We hope people. Yeah, I mean, if you but, think sometimes in the moment, you'll just think of like nobody would believe that this is really happening. Like, well, that's better than if you make something up, and you know, because there's there's actual logical progression. Um, before we talk about the book itself, there was something in your bio that I think is funny. On the website, it talks about your lifetime little league batting average of 081, which personally I'm jealous of because it implies you got at least one hit, which I was never <laughs> lucky, but. Uh, talk about how you get that kind of an average where I feel like even Mario Mendoza would send you a condolence letter if he saw that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. You're a Mets fan. I know that. I, I was am. A, yeah. I was a diehard Yankees fan, and Bud was a diehard Dodgers fan, which made made a lot of fun. But, but back to Little League, I, I was all promise and no delivery. I was kind of a big <laughs> kid that I was angry. And, and literally, it was .081. And I, I, I was doing an interview on a sports uh, show the other day, and, and the guy couldn't believe it. I said, look, I can tell you at least one of those hits. And it was a sizzling bunt. <laughs> it, it, it was a sizzling bunt that kind of dribbled over towards third base, and it started spinning around like a child's top. And, and I tried to stretch it into a double, but that didn't work, so I went back to first. And, and that's the only hit I can remember. It was pathetic. And uh, he said he'd been doing sports radio for 30 years <laughs> and essentially never heard a more pathetic story or a sizzling butt. But, uh, and Bud was even worse. Bud chimed in and he said, well, you know, I got on base a lot more than Mac, but he just tried to get hit in the head with the ball. 
bottom line is I think Rob was pretty good. I think Rob was pretty good. But uh, that was about it for baseball. For yeah, me. well, speaking of baseball, I wanted to talk about a story that you wrote. I think it's the first one in the book that you wrote called The Commissioner. And you talk about you and the guys like the idea of playing disorganized sports instead of going through. That's not the term you use, but that's what I was thinking when I was writing it down. You know, you have to go through the channels and the protocols of the official team sports, but sometimes you just want to get together with your friends and play, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we were pretty much disorganized about everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, talk about how you ended up with, there was a, a slightly younger and somewhat awkward, but apparently brilliant kid named Willie who ended up being the commissioner of your baseball league because you had to include him and it made sense to make him the commissioner. Uh, thank you. For, it, I, I, I do enjoy that story and, and uh, it is really, really a true story uh, with a fairly poignant ending and I, I'll, I'll make a, an audible here if I give the ending away, but, but the setup is we, as we said, we would just kind of migrate from backyard to backyard to backyard and our welcome would be worn out after a certain number of bushes were destroyed or, you know, the occasional broken window, which we would, we would own up to. So we'd have to find new fields, and one of the best ones was uh, the backyard of a, of a wonderful family uh, in town. And um, the young fella in the family was about five years younger than us, five years. And, of course, he wanted to, to grow up. He wanted to, you know, we were 11 and 12, and he was maybe six or seven, that he wanted to play with the big boys, and, and it just didn't really work that way. You know how boys are. And uh, his mom said, well, wait a minute. You know, if you guys are going to use the field here, you've got to find a way to use Willie. And uh, he was a brilliant kid. And, and we said, well, we really can't let him play, but let's make him the commissioner. We really didn't know what a commissioner did. But the kid, the kid jumped into the job, Christian, and, 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 and created – some degree of sanity in wiffle ball chaos, and uh, it, it was really a great a great league. And uh, the end result is, I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant kid. He went on to Yale University of Pennsylvania uh, School of Law, and he wrote what is really considered one of the greatest law review articles ever, uh, pivoting the idea of law around the infield common uh, infield. In, uh, Common law infield, uh, 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 infield, the infield rule. yeah, the infield I fly rule. And he explained it to us, but, but basically he wouldn't let us uh, catch different pieces of the wiffle ball and, and call them one, two, or three outs. I mean, he was a brilliant kid, and he wrote uh, wrote this fantastic law review article, which really uh, talked about stopping tomfoolery on the baseball field uh, with the infield fly rule, much like the common law in the United States was designed to create uh, law and order in the country. It was a brilliant work. I have not done it justice, but uh, it was really a way to do a, a salute and a tribute to really a wonderful yeah. guy. Uh, we lost him um, years back. He, he, he died in his 60th year, and it was uh, it, it's a loss that we still feel. I was sorry to read that part, but I was glad to hear that he sort of had this recognition for this. And, you know, they say... Uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and apparently this idea of comparing things to the infield fly rule really caught on. And I guess, like, oh, a, yeah. you know, you there were are instances that there was just a lot of it. It sort of ran rampant after he wrote it. I think you said he wrote it maybe in the early seventies, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it was sometime in the uh, early to mid seventies. But I mean, really, 
I mean, this is all relative. To say that a law review article becomes famous in itself is kind of an oxymoron, <laughs> but it really did. I mean, it became probably the most famous law review article ever written. And, and you know, listen, I kind of stretched the story a little bit to, to, to kind of try to suggest that the origins of his greatness started back there on our wiffle ball field. It was kind of a stretch, but uh, I hope... Uh, I hope it did him justice. He was a wonderful, wonderful. He became a dear friend. Yeah. Uh, as the age, as the age difference didn't make as much, uh, it didn't mean as much as we got older. Just a brilliant, uh, wonderful, wonderful fellow. You know, and we've lost lost a number of the friends that appear in the book. I know we've uh, tried to uh, bring the stories to an end uh, in the end of the book and the acknowledgments and the afterward, but. Uh, you know, we have lost some of the some of the good ones, right? And I'm sure we'll end up speaking about a few more of those. Just to uh, stick on this story again for a moment, uh, the commissioner. Uh, as you were talking about it, I was thinking that one of the big differences, maybe between kids in the '50s and kids in the '80s when I grew up, that if we broke a window, we would all scatter and run back to our houses, and the, you know, we'd end up in big trouble for it. But it was like, oh, we're not sticking around and own up for it. Uh, and so maybe having the direct tutelage of the greatest generation rubbed off on on you kids a little bit better than those of us with those those crazy, lazy boomer parents, you know? So, Christian, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether this would, would be appropriate, but I love the last paragraph in that story, the commissioner. Can I read that to you? Yeah, Is please that do. Okay? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the uh, it, listeners it, will really enjoy it. Yeah, it, it, it kind of brings it full circle, and from time to time in our stories, we kind of try to wink out at the reader and say, you know, may, maybe you've had this kind of experience, or maybe... Maybe you see and miss people from your childhood. And, and I'll just read the last, last two paragraphs. Yes, greatness did come to our commissioner, and maybe, just maybe, it all began with our sneaky tomfoolery in the Lakeview Wiffle Ball League right there in Willie's backyard. Within a few years of the publication of this famous law review note, Stevens Field would be nothing but a memory, grounded dust to make way the ever-expanding interstate system and its connectors in northern New Jersey. But if you find yourself some pleasant summer day driving along Route 24, just east of exit 9B to Hobart Gap Road, glance to your right and listen very, very carefully. You just may hear, or maybe you'll just want to hear, the joyous sounds of boyhood bliss echoing forever alongside the rose bushes and blue gums of the old Stevens Field. But know this, as you move on down the road, those sounds, even if only imagined in gentle reverie, will soon fade away entirely, as did our youth and probably yours. A little small seat, but I think that kind of kind of captures a little bit of the bittersweet of that story. Yeah, and I think that's why I think people connect to books like this so much because it does remind them of, you know, their own youth. Even if they don't have stories even remotely like these, it's sort of like you're reading about the way kids interact with each other and it reminds you of a story of your own. Look, I, I, I've already attested to my lack of proficiency as a baseball player. I would have loved to have been a commissioner. If only somebody could have made me a commissioner of a league, that would have been great. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it seems like Willie was really well-suited for it, coming up with rules like the uh, inventory preservation rule to make you start batting from the other hand and things like that. Uh, I don't know. I just sort of love the way that, you know, you can have this kid who just figures all these things out. 
and you know, in reading the book, uh, I was reminded that in the notes that I got for it, which I got a while ago, it evokes two great writers, uh, Garrison Keillor, who people know from A Prairie Home Companion, and Gene Shepard, who most people know from A Christmas Story, but also has this ama- amazing body of work. And he did a lot of audiobooks that I remember when I was in 10th grade, my English teacher, Mr. Wren, loaned me some tapes because he was like, oh, you're going to really like the way that this guy tells the story. And he was absolutely right. And these all have in common. It just sort of reminds me, and it's probably because I'm from a small town. What they have in common is they remind me of thinking back to how great it was to be able to be a stupid kid. And I, again, I say that in the most loving way possible. Yeah, I, I, I think he's an absolutely marvelous writer. I'm thinking, what is it? Uh, Wanda Hickey's uh, Night of Golden Memories. Kind <laughs> yes. of, uh, it's, it's, it's a great story about his first prom. And uh, A Christmas Story, I think, is just one of the, the, the great uh, joyful uh, movies ever uh, ever made yeah. about childhood. And, you know, he was on uh, the radio when we were growing up, Christian. Oh, I didn't realize um, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I'm hallucinating this, but I think he was on WOR. Uh, and I think he kind of had a nightly show, or at least, and he just tell kind of stories, uh, like a Garrison Keeler. Yeah, I think that went on for a few years. I hope I'm not wrong about that, but at least I have a memory of it, even yeah. if it's after Well, he, he would be well-suited to it. And sort of, you know, those kinds of radio shows are, you know, the the earliest versions of podcasts, you know, where it's really just somebody in a mic just telling a story, and occasionally you have some friends join you, but usually it's just, you know, hoping that what you say, the words that go out there into the airways or into the earbuds at least connect with somebody. And, uh, yeah, he's great. And, you know, people talk about the Christmas story every year, and, you know, uh, Peter Billingsley's Ralphie's great, but uh, the unsung hero is, for me, always Darren McGavin, the Night Stalker. Uh, for, it was another show yeah. he did. But he's great as the dad in that movie. Yeah, I'd, I'd love it when he would when he, he would start wrestling with the uh, boiler down in the, uh, <laughs> in the, in the yeah. basement. I mean, those were some yeah. fabulous. That reminds you know. me, we have my, at our house, we always had a, uh, we had a crawl space. So that was like, when my dad, you literally had to crawl underneath the house. And my dad was always under there fixing something. And that was very reminiscent, you know. My dad, we'd blow a fuse, or if it rained too much, he'd have to get the pump in there. You know, so it was like there was always work going on under the house, so you could oh, hear yeah. it. <laughs> great memories. Oh, great memories! Yeah, absolutely. Let's take our time and talk to our listeners about how readers of the book will meet some interesting characters. And the beauty of podcasts is you don't have to rush through any of these. You don't have to dwell too long on any of them. So I'll just give you a few and any of these that you want to talk more about. Uh, I'm mostly interested, and I have to admit that I haven't had a chance to read the whole book because I did only get it over the weekend. But uh, let's start off with The Dancing Bear because that's a very intriguing sounding name. The Dancing Bear is its a mostly, mostly true story. (laughs) I've actually lifted that nickname uh, from a little bit later in time, but, but I love the nickname. And, uh, you know, there was always a dancing bear person hanging around high schools. And, and in this case, he was a, a good football player. But, but that was kind of the extent of his school spirit. And, and it all worked out pretty well if, if, if the dancing bear was just focused on football. But he kind of went all goofy on school spirit and, and basically decided that uh, he would uh, get involved with the refreshment committee of, of one of the dances. And, and as I said, that's usually the most harmless committee because, you know, all you could serve is punch. Well, he knew someone. In, in, in Jersey, they say he had a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. <laughs> 
but uh, it was a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy somewhere down on the shore, maybe Asbury Park, that had these uh, uh, cotton candy machines and ice cone machines. And, and he just popped up and said, man, I think I can get us uh, cotton candy in these kind of little wagon things. And, I mean, we were so bereft of other ideas, we jumped at the idea, renamed the entire dance uh, carnival, and, uh, of course, he, he came through with the ice cone machines and the cotton candy machines. Well, that's the worst combination in the world for sophomores and juniors dressing up in little tuxedos to have that kind of sloppy stuff. So it went nuts. The machines went crazy. The kids uh, started to really enjoy the fun with cotton candy, and the whole thing was a gooey, sticky mess. And unfortunately, that was the last time that the dancing bear ever volunteered to do anything <laughs> other than play tackle. <laughs> well, yeah. and, we, and we were all much better for that. <laughs> yeah, fo- focus more on the bear and, and less on the dancing. As we noted, I mean, the, the guy probably had the thinnest uh, uh, the college application resume, uh, you know, refreshment committee two. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, <laughs> sophomore year, junior year, and then that was it, plus football. <laughs> Anyway, it's a pretty true story. A little embellishment. Yeah, well, no, that, that sounds great. Plenty embellishment. And I'm going to rattle off these names, but we'll take our time and go through each of them because I just sort of love the names of Spike, the Duke, Fat Jack, and Suds. Oh, yeah. So let's start off with Spike. Tell us who Spike is. Spike was, was a, we've lost Spike too, was one of our friends who's passed on. He was a tall, gangly kid. Uh, my favorite story in the book, Christian, is uh, Band for Life. And, and, and uh, for your listeners out there, I think it's a great first story to dive into if you just want the pure zany joy of, of, of kids just finding stupid. But, but, but Spike was like 6'2 when he was 14 or 15 years old. He was ungainly, uh, but he loved to bowl. And uh, Spike, I think, got his nickname because he would try to kind of slide in with his spikes high in, in, in the second base of Little League, and that never quite worked too well. <laughs> no. But I won't spoil the fun of uh, Band for Life other than it involved uh, hopeless tossing of a bowling ball at our favorite bowling alley. The end result of his performance was a lifetime ban <laughs> for all of us from that bowling alley. It's still in effect, by the way. We can't go up there at Livingston. But, but Spike was a wonderful friend. He turned out eventually to be a very good athlete. That would be amazing if any one of you tried to walk into that bowling alley and it was like, nope, band's still in place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Chris, we, we don't dare try. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's probably one of those big, uh, you know, one of those big wanted posters in there. <laughs> but Bud wrote that story, by the way, and I think it's the funniest one in the book. That shows you guys are still really good friends, that you're not able to say, like, oh, it's the second best story in the book. Or, oh, no, you know. no, it's, it's my favorite. I love them all, but uh, right. I think that's one that really pops up to the top. Well, tell us about the Duke. Duke was one of those classic great guys guys that always could almost take it over the top. And, and he had this miraculous ability to kind of flip his eyelids up and roll his eyeballs up into his head, which basically appeared as if he was dead. <laughs> and he would, he would deploy those tricks all the time. He was kind of a practical joker. And, and he makes uh, a few hilarious practical jokes and appearances in, uh, in, in a number of the stories. Uh, Rob's story about Mr. Jager, Mr. Jager's a classic uh, Duke, a Duke story. Um, a couple of others where Duke has, has done more mischief and 
brought us all down to ruin. Uh, <laughs> wonderful guy, and again, we, we miss him, too. Uh, let's talk about uh, Fat Jack, who today we would call either Big Boned Jack or Glandular Disorder Jack, but back then it was probably fine to call him Fat Jack. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, political correctness does not weave itself <laughs> into these stories, and we, we, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to go back and kind of talk like we were telling these stories back then. So, you know, at the risk of some political incorrectness, uh, that's how we went forward. Uh, I never met Fat Jack. Uh, Fat Jack was one of the adventures that Bud had uh, when when uh, our parents would wise up and and they disperse us <laughs> during the summer and, and, and try to get us out of town. And some of us were lucky enough to go to what I guess they called sleepover camps, but but never did they let us go to the same sleepover camp. I mean, I think they got together sometime in the middle of the year and, and took a map of the eastern United States and, and figured out how far they could send all of us in this kind of gang of clowns uh, away from town and away from each other. But, uh, but Fat Jack had, uh, had some amazing talents uh, at Bud's camp, and I won't spoil his story other than I think it's, it's just a classic of, of, of silly boys having fun just in, in a good time. Sure, and uh, I guess uh, Suds seems to be another uh, close friend who appears in multiple stories, unless I'm mistaken. Suds probably appears in... In many of my stories, uh, Suds was and continues to be my best friend in, in the world. I just went to celebrate his 50th wedding anniversary with his high school girlfriend. Uh, been married for 50 years. We grew up across the street from one another. <clears throat> We're much more like brothers than uh, than either of us had a brother, so we are we are brothers. Uh, Suds is just one of those guys, a charmer. He could just Got away with anything, and and just with a with a little aw shuck smile, and, and a little twinkle, uh, and and as I say, if anybody could do relaxed, it was Suds. No matter what chaos was happening, no matter what trouble we were in, Suds had this calm kind of always in control. I said no one could do uh, relaxed better than Suds Estes. And uh, again, if I were going to choose. My favorite story that I wrote, it's probably so that's how she got the bird, which is our uh, magical mooching of what we thought was a complete Thanksgiving dinner down the Jersey Shore in Lavalette, New Jersey, in uh, the summer of 1963. And uh, those of us who grew up in Jersey and perhaps all up and down the East Coast, we just love the beach, we love the shore, and uh, I, I tried to capture not only Suds, just infectious good humor and, and sense of sense of the ridiculous, but the kind of magic that we all shared when we would find a way to get down to the shore and spend two or three days. Yeah, Suds is, Suds is just a wonderful friend, and I told him I was going to try to make him a legend. <laughs> I don't know whether we've succeeded, but I think he has some pretty good starring roles in the book. Yeah, and it's interesting that you know you talk about the shore, uh, because I spent, I guess the first 15 summers of my life, we would at least spend a week or two on the mainland, but across from Long Beach Island, New Jersey, uh, because yeah. my, my great grandfather had built a house there. And that's, I, I, at some point that's where my grandmother had lived when they were younger, I guess, before they moved uh, a little bit uh, more to Bergen County, New Jersey. But so we always went there. It was one of those things, you know, look, we were very firmly, 
blue collar. My dad had a good job. He got paid vacation time. He got two weeks a year, but we couldn't afford to go anywhere. So we would stay at this house that my grandparents owned. And, you know, we would very rarely go out to eat. We would just go to the A&P and shop like we were shopping at home, eat most of our meals at home, but we would still get to go to the beach and see the lighthouse and all that and just be able to be, you know, out at the beach. So it's something that I've always been fond of. And I've lived in California for about 15 years now. And to my great shame, you get so that you take the beach for granted when it's that easy to go to, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, I, I live down here in uh, not far off of, of Hilton Head, uh, South Carolina, and, and I don't go to the beach every day. And if you told me that back when I was 14 or 15 years and I was eight miles from a beach and not going there every day, I'd say you're absolutely nuts. But uh, it, it's, a, it's a magic. I mean, and I, I, I hope the kids still love it. I think they do up and down the coast. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, while I haven't had a chance to take my son to the shore yet, I know how much he loves to, you know, be at any beach and any pool at any time, especially in the summer. And I guess one of the good things about growing up in Southern California, that pool season is most of the year, you know, so he's he really gets yeah. a lot of time in there. Talking a little bit about a, a bit of a more grown-up story, I think, is talk about why your first drink should never be a Manhattan. <laughs> oh, well... This is, uh, Bud wrote the story, but, but the star of the story is the good professor, uh, Rob Hamilton. Um, and, and, and Rob, it, it, I would, it's all relative, but I would argue that Rob has always been the most mature of, 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 of our gang. Uh, grew up to be a, a, a very distinguished uh, professor, and he's now a professor emeritus, having just retired. He's cerebral, he's funny. He's he's uh, he's grounded. He's a responsible adult, um, and and he was probably one of the more responsible uh, folks that we hung around. But I wasn't a part of this adventure. But somehow or another, about fifteen or sixteen of our buddies convinced their parents that they were fully capable of renting three canoes <laughs> and, and 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 canoeing the Delaware River. Uh, somewhere down the Del- around the Delaware Water Gap. But, I mean, you understand that none of those 14 or 15 kids had, had ever had a canoe lesson, and I wasn't a part of that story because my parents smelled a rat. <laughs> they, they said, this is, this is as free-range as, as you are, this is too much. I mean, something it's, bad it, it, it's well, funny. It's funny that you say that because there are definitely a few adventures that friends of mine went on that uh, I wasn't allowed to go on, and they didn't go well, and it was because, yeah, my mom wisely knew. was like, no, you're not going to do that. Well, yeah, Christian, and that's great. I mean, I mean, as it turned out, nothing really bad happened, but, but I, I regret to this day, you talked about the uh, collaboration, as, as Bud and Rob were, were just regaling this story and writing it, I mean, I, I got kind of pissed off that I wasn't alone for the ride. I said, this was one of the great papers of, of all time. And, and again, I won't spoil the, the, the marvelous writing, but the, the bottom line is, I mean, they showed up and rented these three canoes, and they didn't know which direction to point the canoes on the Delaware River. And, and, and they literally started heading upriver. Well, you can't do that with a, with a, with a flowing river. So I mean, that was just how it all started. But the bottom line is, uh, again, without trying to spoil it too much, they did end up uh, overnight uh, bivouacking kind of near a bar uh, in a terrible rainstorm. And uh, uh, what's one to do when one is 17 years old in New York but pretends you can uh, drink at 18? And uh, a uh, the rest, they said, is history. That, yeah. Uh, 
the power of a certain adult beverage <laughs> to create a legend uh, goes unchallenged in the book. Uh, I, I love that story, too. It's well-written, and I love that it, it features, features Rob in, in an absolutely hysterical role. Yeah, and what I, and what I've found is the younger you are when adult beverages are involved, usually the uh, more disastrous the uh, the the results are. Uh, you know, <laughs> and uh, that's that's kind of a funny little just sort of little background about my town that I grew up in, Greenwood Lake. It's in New York, but it's on the border of New Jersey. So when the drinking age was 21 in New Jersey, but 18 in New York, we, and this is well before my time, but you'd get a lot of, a lot of kids that would come over from New Jersey because Greenwood Lake had the most bars per square mile because it was like old zoning. There was a bar like half a block from my elementary school because it had been built before the school. So there's like, you weren't going to really get it to move. But the funny thing is that my dad once was talking to me about like, Oh yeah, my friends and I used to go to Greenwood Lake. And I'm like, well, well, why was that, Dad? And he was just like, oh, we used to just go up there to get sodas or whatever. And I'm like, didn't you have sodas in, in Westwood, New Jersey? <laughs> but uh... well, You know, Christian, I'm, I'm really surprised we didn't discover Greenwood Lake, but, but our gang would, would head over to Staten Island. Oh, sure. The 18 years. And I think in one of the stories I talk about, uh, I think it's kind of tangential to the story, but... But we go over, and, and someday I do want to go back to Staten Island and see if I can find this. I won't call it a seedy tavern, <laughs> but it, it, it was a tavern with easy rules. And, and, and I may have stretched this a little bit, but my recollection is they would ask for a, to see a license, a dr- presumptively a driver's license, to show that we were 18. And uh, truth be known, we were a little short of that. But... <laughs> the story, I suggest that we pointed out the window to the license plate on our car, which was a Jersey plate. They kind of understood and kind of nodded and said, okay, we wink and we blink. So there was just, I'm not sure that I would encourage my kids to do that, but, uh, you know, that was the uh, mysteries of the 18-year-old and the lure of the 18-year-old drinking age to uh, to the youngsters. <laughs> Yeah, which, uh, you know, I, I guess like when you have state by state laws, they're a lot less effective when you border a state that closely that has the other law. But uh, by the time I was a kid, they were all, uh, you know, it was the, the federal uh, drinking age was 21. But uh, I don't know. We've somehow found our ways, I guess. <laughs> it didn't hurt that my brother was five years older than me. And uh, I, yeah, I, well, yeah, absolutely. And, and I realized that we, you know, we had a lot of great adventures at these, these various uh, Taverns of easy virtue in, in Staten Island, but, but and, and this is a sad. I, I first I've ever confessed this. Uh, why not do it on, uh, on on the show? But I've never been to the I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. I mean, I've been to about nineteen seedy taverns. <laughs> you know, like I said, we, we we didn't try to be idiots. We did stupid stuff. You know, the, the, the interesting thing about that is it's like when you grow up around something, you, you don't really go to it. And I didn't go like I'd walked by the Empire State Building so many times in my life, but I didn't actually go until uh, about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago because my wife was like, well, you should just you should just go up to the top of it and see. And I'm like, all right, fine, we'll go because you know she's from out here in California and she had been several times and I had still never been. And I was like, you know, it's just one of those things you always figure you're going to get to. And I guess that's yeah. the Statue of Liberty with you. You know, one day maybe you'll get there. Well, you know, I, I, I can make it a twofer, Christian. I could, 
I could try to find those CD taverns and, and I could go to the statues. I, I, this could be a great reunion for Hamilton and Schill and me, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> b- before we run out of time, I one of the stories I wanted to find out a little bit more about, it's not one that I'd made it to in the book yet, but I love the idea that somehow you guys were able to help the great Don Newcomb win a game for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, Don Newcomb is someone who is very, very well regarded here in Los Angeles because I, because I live in Los Angeles. If I'm going to go to a baseball game, it's very often a Dodgers game. And uh, you'll uh, definitely hear a lot about him. You'll see a lot of clips and things. He's somebody that uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers are just as fond of as the Brooklyn Dodgers fans were. Really interesting. What I mentioned, Bud is the, he was the, the consummate Brooklyn Dodgers. Sure. And, and, and I wasn't. I, I mean, I was a Yankees guy, but I think there was a group called the, the Knothole Gang. Does that yeah, resonate? Yeah, I've definitely heard that. They, they, I yeah. think you could literally, at Ebbets Field, you could literally watch the game through, like, holes in, in the fence. Yeah. I mean, I never went to Ebbets Field. I mean, that, that's another place that I didn't go. I, mean, I was a diehard Yankees guy. But, but again, uh, 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 Eat a Mad Nuke is another good-hearted, fun, PG story uh, of just the, the wonderful goofiness of kids when you're 11, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I guess it's still around, but Mad Magazine was kind of our sure. subversive Bible, you know. And uh, they were zany and wonderful. And, and uh, as Bud tells the story, they had a squib going kind of for a while that, that if anything went crazy or anything was bad in your life, you would, you would take a Mad Magazine and start eating it. <laughs> I mean, you know, what? You know, what, what was anyone thinking? I mean, yeah, our brains were rotting. But, uh, I mean, not, I don't think any of us actually did it, but, but the phrase, eat a mad, was kind of, well, if you're having a bad day, or you've done something, go eat a mad. <laughs> well, somehow or another, Bud and a, and a bunch of the other guys end up at a uh, uh, Dodgers game with Big Don Newcomb having a hard day at the plate, and uh, I guess the field was pretty close, and they had good seats. So they started kind of not razzing Nuke, but, but trying to help him. And, and, and the kind of whacked world we lived in, you know, if you're having a bad day, you eat a mad. <laughs> so <laughs> these guys shouting, you know, eat a mad, Nuke, eat a mad. I mean, and they claim that Nukem looks over and said, what are these idiot kids doing? <laughs> you know? I mean... And I don't know, but, you know, and I think, I think Bud likes to claim that, it, that it's the focus broke the spell and, uh, and their chant, uh, if not the actual eating of a mad magazine, uh, helped win the day for, for Don Newcomb. And, and, you know, that was the last year. I think, I think Bud had been at that stadium in 57, and they decamped out to California the next year. Yeah, in 58 they started playing at yeah. the Coliseum, and then Dodger Stadium opened in 62. So they had uh, four seasons there at the Coliseum. And, uh, yeah, and my understanding of Ebbets Field is that it was so small that you probably could have gotten his attention from most places in the stands. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. And, again, that's a, a – you know, one of the things that, that – that, that you, and you've been attracted to them, a lot of our stories – are our uh, 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 sports stories, and and again, I think that kind of fits our, our narrative that that we spent a lot of time either playing sports or thinking about sports. So we didn't have computers, we didn't really have you know twenty four seven television. Uh, we were a lot about play, you know, and, and I think that was uh, that was important whether we were doing it, playing baseball, 
or, or, or enjoying it. And, you know, when you grow up, grow up outside a big city, uh, you, you do have the chance to, to see some of the big league ball players. And, again, that was, I loved going over to Yankee Stadium, but um, we, we couldn't afford it much. But uh, we get over there occasionally. But I, I love that story. You've, you've got great taste in these stories, by the way. <laughs> well, these are the ones Thank that you. jumped out at me. You know, there's there's Good, some I was yeah. I had a chance to read, and some that I I'm just interested in knowing more. And obviously, something to do with uh, with the Dodgers was uh, interesting to me. Uh, one of the things that I notice on the book before I even open it is that you get some nice praise from the book by none other than Wally Cleaver himself. Tony Dow. Now, I was wondering if you were afraid it might hurt book sales if you got a quote from someone as controversial as Ken Osmond, you know, also known as Eddie Haskell, or uh, oh. did you just feel like Tony was the the right sort of demographic, the right look for this book? I actually, that's a great question, and and it was like like so much, Christian. As you get older and you look back, it's just kind of stumbling in into luck. Uh, we did end up with uh, with a wonderful agent who. who who's helped guide us, uh, uh, Jerry Rudis with Mistral Artist Management up there in New York City. And uh, he was able, through his relationships and professional race relationships, to share the book with, uh, with Tony Dow and, and uh, ask him. And Tony was, was just gracious to say the kind words. And, uh, boy, I think he nailed it. Uh, look, life wasn't as easy as it would appear on, on Leave it to Beaver. And certainly, as we said, our stories, uh, you know, it wasn't just sunshine and light all the time, but, but that was a great uh, shorthand, we felt, to, uh, to tell people what's inside here. If you, like, if you like that kind of gentle, funny stuff like, like you'd see on Leave it to Beaver or Wonder Years in the later, uh, sure. in the later years, you've come to the right place. I, I do have to say the, the other thing that we were just so blessed to get was uh, the kind words from Pat Conroy. Um, I live about 20 miles uh, south of Pat Conroy's uh, home. Uh, it's now the Pat Conroy Literary Center is doing some great work with young writers and writing. Uh, I met Mr. Conroy. Um, I won't tell the whole story, but he had had a chance to review my manuscript. Uh, we are contemporaries. Um, he did not publish my book through the University of South Carolina because of his work is, is fiction, but over the last eight or nine years, uh, he devoted his energies, not just to his great writing, uh, he's a great talent, but he had a very generous heart. And, and he set out for said, the last eight or nine years to help find mostly young new writing talent in the Southeast and, and give, give those writers uh, a boost. In some cases, he was able to publish some wonderful new works. In other cases, he'd, he'd, he'd say a, a kind word or two about a book to help us get some traction and, and jumpstart it. And uh, as I've said to many people, uh, he said it was a great book about friendship. Um, boy, Bud, Rob, and I would have been happy if he just said, you know, this is pretty good. Yeah. So we were... You know, and, we were humbled, um, lucky. Um, it just he is, uh, it, 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 for my money, not only one of the great writers, but one of the great characters of, of all time in literature. But a man with a generous and gracious heart, and uh, I think he will leave uh, a mark on so so many uh, writers 
Yeah, and then just in case the name Pat Conroy doesn't jump out for our listeners, uh, this is the novelist for The Great Santini, The Prince of Tides, My Losing Season, and that's just that's just three that fit on a line, you know. But uh, and in all honesty, the name didn't immediately register with me, but then I saw Great Santini, Prince of Tides, and I was like, okay, I definitely know who that is. So, and that's great, and I love the idea that you know he's sort of regionally trying to help out you know writers in the part of the country that you're in, and I don't know, I just I, I always like when you hear stories about people helping you out you know it's a it's a different medium entirely but uh when i was in college uh i interned at saturday night live and i was just an intern and i was writing jokes for the for the newscast just hoping to get one on and a comedian named colin quinn he did the news at that point and anytime he'd run into me he would tell me what they needed more jokes for you know he would give me pointers he was like we need this we need that what do you got you know so just you always remember the people who are willing to help you out in any way. And it just it, it took hardly anything for him to do that. You know, we were already we we're in the elevator, you know, so why not talk about something like that? So it's always encouraging to hear when people are willing to help out. Yeah, I, I, I love that story. It, it, you know, it's kind of the paying it forward, you know, idea. And hey, I want to be you when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, what a that must have been. <laughs> that was that was fun. That was a lot of fun to uh, you know. I I I've talked about this recently on one of the one of the shows that uh, I'll sometimes be a guest on a show called The Tomorrow Show. I talked yeah. about how when I was a kid, uh, I was like in middle school. What I wanted to do was I wanted to grow up and be the newscaster, do weekend update on Saturday Night Live. Now, when I was a kid, the person doing that was Dennis yeah. Miller. So yeah. Dennis Miller, whom I've worked for for most of the last like 15 years. So it's you just have to sort of adapt what your dream is. So I didn't get to be him, but I get to work with him and I've been lucky enough to write things for him. And I've heard words that I've written said by him. And, you know, I co-host a podcast with him called The Dennis Miller Option on Podcast One. It's just not exactly the way that you expect it to go out, but... It's uh, it's nice to sort of have people who are able to help you out, and th- I guess that's what I always say to people is like, you know, whatever your, whatever your dream is, just make sure it's it's a little bit flexible, maybe a little malleable to the to the reality of your situation, and you know, just getting to work on t- television shows, even if I had the internships were all I ever did, that would have been exciting, you know. But uh, oh, it's it's nice to be able to spin it into other things. That's 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 a, a great story, you know. I, I mean, I'm, it caused me to reflect here for a minute that. Bud and I were both lawyers. I'm, I'm fully recovered. Uh, Bud is still practicing. Uh, Rob just retired uh, and, and assumed a, a terrific, honorific of professor emeritus. But, but I'd have to say, you know, our, our day jobs were fairly conventional, you know. Moving into to the creative side of things, uh, certainly your world and radio and writing, and, the, and, and even writing a, a book, and I think all of us are, are doing some additional writing, uh, it is a real leap. But uh, what fun it is. I mean, I know Rob has said this, and Bud, it it not only has strengthened in in, in doing the book, not only strengthened our friendship, but we discovered that we love doing this. The question pops up, are we going to do a sequel? Um, And I like to say, boy, if people want it, you know, build it. and and (laughs) (laughs) Escort, we will build it, I guess, to to flip it on the other side uh, and to do other writing. And uh, what a what a nice way to cement friendships and 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 drive into the sunset, you know, yeah, on the, on the senior side of the table. <laughs> 
Well, the book we've been talking about for, believe it or not, uh, a little bit more than an hour now, and that's the beauty of having these kind of stories, is that you kind of look down, you look at your notes, you're having a conversation, you're having a fun chat, and you go like, oh, wow, we've already done the whole show. Look at that. But the book we've been talking about, not exactly rocket scientists and other stories, uh, the book is available on Amazon, and I'm sure you can find it at some of your bookstores, but Amazon is always the sort of go-to for everyone. And more information on the book and maybe where to find it, you go to notexactlyrocketscientists.com. And I've been talking to John McElroy for, like I said, a little bit more than an hour. And it's what I've read has been so much fun. I actually really look forward to reading more. I'm glad that you've just sort of teased some of the stories. So now I don't know where they're going when I actually finish the book. And uh, I just uh, really look forward to it. And I'm Glad that I got the chance to meet you, even though it's, you know, over the podcast telephone. Well, this has been an absolutely wonderful hour with you, Christian. And, uh, you know, I hope, I hope you enjoy the stories. I hope I've teased you to dig into the book and maybe teased a few sales out there. <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope that uh, we can at least get a few of them in there and, uh, you know, that the, the talk of the sequel gets uh, very real. Anyway, thanks so much, John. And, uh, again, the book is called Not Exactly Rocket Scientists and Other Stories. And as I said, that is our time, so we will see you next time on The Black Cast. Wonderful. Uh, oh. This was the most fun interview we've had. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. I and, mean, and I, you, you did your homework, and I knew it. I did some quick background reading on you. Were you ever really called, what was it, Slappy? Oh, Slappy and the Commandant. Yeah, that was a bit that, was a bit that we would do on Dennis's radio show. You know how you have your goofy morning radio teams? Yeah, and, yeah, and the idea that I was a guy named Slappy, and he was like the the stone-faced, stern one called the Commandant. So anything he would say is like, isn't that right, Slappy? And then I just stole the laugh from Krusty the Clown on The Simpsons, and I would just go, that's right! And then every fifth time, I would just sort of say something really dark and like, not now, Commandant. Something like that, you know? It just, it was this overly sophisticated dumb idea. We would do a lot of, even on the podcast, we still do a lot of dumb stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that's the only reason I was ever called Slappy. (laughs) 